If you would, I want you to put your ribbon in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Go ahead and put your marker in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And once you have found your place there, I want you to make your way over to Psalm 3. And while you're doing that, I just want to remind you that the book of Psalms is actually a collection of songs. It is not one book with 150 chapters. It is individual psalms. The book of Psalms is divided into five different parts or scrolls. We call it books. But the first book is Psalm 1 through 41. And the theme of book 1 is the need for divine deliverance. Human, human suffering and the need for divine deliverance. And in Psalm 3 specifically... Uh, salvation from the enemies that would seek to do us harm. And I do want to remind you, and this is why I just couldn't get away from this part of it, and this is why today we're starting, I think I'm going to do it in two parts, today and next week. Uh, And that is on when God's people mess up. I don't think that's talked about enough. And so it's going to be some pretty heavy stuff uh, today and next week, especially today. I, I just... I could not get away from this. There's 14 psalms uh, that correlate with another event in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 3, David is the writer of the psalm, and it tells us in the introduction to the psalm that he is actually running away from his son Absalom. Absalom has conspired against him. He has turned the hearts of the people to him. David has fled with some of his choice servants and soldiers, but he is in the wilderness. The Bible said it happened so quickly when he got word of this coup. uh, He immediately fled to the wilderness, so much so the Bible said he was running up the Mount of Olives barefooted, covering his head. This was a very shameful thing. This warrior, this this great fighter, this great military king is running away from his own son. Absalom has taken 12,000 soldiers and is in hot pursuit of David. He's going to kill his own father. And so you can only imagine the kind of mindset and mood that David was in when he wrote this psalm. And so we ask the question, though, how did the king get in this position? When in a lot of ways, I feel like we see something like this and there's just no way for us to know all the ins and outs. But here we know why he was in this position. It was because of his sin. Uh, We find out in 2 Samuel chapter 12, because of David's adultery with Bathsheba, Because he had her husband Uriah killed, uh, Nathan the prophet was sent by God to David and what Nathan said to him is that the sword would never depart from his house and that the Lord would raise up evil against David from his own household. This is why Absalom rose up against him and so he is in this position because of his sin. And when we understand that, I believe it sheds new light on this psalm. And I would say this, you know, Psalm 3 by itself, if we didn't even know the situation, it would stand by itself as great comfort to the believer. And I don't want to take away from that. But this situation is so specific that I feel like we lose so much when we don't recognize the background. That's why we're going to go to uh, 2 Samuel 11 after we read this psalm. Understanding that David is running away from Absalom and 12,000 soldiers. Let's read the word of God together in Psalm 3. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? 
Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awake, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon Thy people. Selah. And so I want you to understand, we're going to look at this in two parts. When God's people mess up. Uh, if you look at the psalm itself, the first few verses seem hopeless. But by the time you get to verse 4, David is crying out to God, the Lord hears him, and even in judgment, there was mercy, peace, and protection for David. And so we're going to look at that next week. But today, I want to look at how to avoid moral failure. Because David had, <laughs> he had a definite moral failure, and it changed his life forever. Listen, we understand that all sin is grievous to God. All sin is an offense to God. And as far as the unsaved goes, uh, the Bible says that all sin brings forth death. That's eternal perishing under the judgment of God. But listen to this, different sin has different consequences. I mean, thinking about adultery is a sin. There's no doubt about it. We need to repent and get that thing right. But uh, acting upon that thought or lust, the consequences are just astronomical. I don't have to tell you all that. But I think somehow we've kind of been pressured to believe that, well, you know, all sin is sin. Well, that, yeah, that is true. But some sin carries deeper consequences than others. Some, listen, some sin is life-changing. And this is it. David loved God. He was a man after God's own heart. And he committed life-changing, heinous sin. So when we look at the patterns in David's life that led to this, I think we can learn some things about avoiding moral failure. And listen, we're, we're all on level ground this morning. I am not speaking to you from an ivory tower. You are listening to someone who knows that I need to guard my heart and keep it with all diligence and give my thought life to God. Let me, let me just explain this. If I had acted on many of the thoughts that have popped into my mind, even since I've been saved, my life would be in shambles right now. And yours would too. You might as well say amen or oh me. And once we understand that we are our own worst enemy, then we can depend on God to take sides against ourselves. Amen? So with that in mind, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. <coughs> For sake of time, I won't read the whole thing. We'll, we'll uh, read some verses and then I'll just kind of give the cliff notes of everything else. But this is the sin that led to David fleeing from Absalom and all these soldiers in Psalm 3. This is it. This is why David was in Psalm 3's position. Second uh, Samuel 11 and verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Reboth. But David uh, tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening time that David arose from off his bed 
and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now just to give you a cliff note to the rest of this chapter. Uh, now David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant. Uh, Uriah, her husband, is a soldier in his army. And David is in full damage control mode. How do I conceal this sin? And what he does is he has Uriah come in from the battle and the thought was if he stays with Bathsheba, maybe he'll be with his wife and then uh, it would always be thought that the child was Uriah's. But Uriah was too faithful to do that. He would not even stay in his own house. He said, I will not be in comfort. While my men are on the battlefield, I will sleep in the street. I bet David felt about that small because that's what he should have been doing. And, well, that doesn't work. So he thinks, how can I cover this up? He thinks, oh, I know what I'll do. He gave Joab special instruction, one of his generals, to put Uriah on the front lines of the hottest battle, knowing he would probably be killed. And that's what happened. But to me, one of the saddest and most ironic things in the whole Bible is the fact that David gives that letter to Joab to Uriah to take to the battle. He was literally carrying his own death certificate. If he had, if he had done the wrong thing and been an unfaithful soldier and read that letter, it would have saved his life. Are you kidding me? He was killed by his own faithfulness, both to his men and to the army and to the mission. And so, I mean, you talk about heinous sin. David's committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband killed. I mean, this, this story grieves me. This really happened. David really did this. But the question we ought to ask is how? Listen, this is proof, David is proof that even God's people can mess up and mess up horribly. So how did it get to this place? This should give us pause to say if David a man after God's own heart, the giant slayer, the great warrior king, if, if one of God's choice servants like that can fall flat on their face morally, then it could happen to any of us. You want, I'm just going to give you some advice, and I would, I would encourage you to take it. You better be really careful saying things like, I would never do this, or I will always do. You better be really careful doing that. That's why the Lord tells us not to boast thyself of tomorrow. You don't even know what today is going to bring. And so we, we need to be really careful about that. And so let's ask another question. This is what I want to wrestle with. How did this happen in David's life? And how can we learn from it? How can we avoid moral disaster? Well, the first thing I want you to look at, i got four things this morning we're going to be through. The first thing I want you to look at is rejoicing in the Lord. Number one, we have to rejoice in the Lord. Look at here in uh, 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, 
at the time when kings go forth to battle, we need to underline that phrase right there, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And without the joy of the Lord and who He is and what He's done for us, we are open to the temptations of the enemy. Think about this scenario for a minute. Because we're talking about the king who was once a young shepherd boy who at that time was the standard of an absolute nobody. Shepherds were despised in that day. Still are, by the way, in that part of the country. And he was an absolute nobody. But he had been handpicked by God to be the king. We're talking about David the giant slayer, the one that outlasted King Saul and eventually came to the throne. And since David took the throne, all he did was win. He was a military genius. He was the greatest warrior king that Israel has ever known. This king, how did this happen to him? The the story of David is a rags to riches, hero to a zero, pauper to a prince story that Hollywood is so full of. All due to the grace and the power of God. But listen, things had been too good for too long. Things have been so good for so long that when you read this verse, this text here, it just seems like the magic is gone for David. He, he really seems bored with it all. I mean, notice how verse. this is so important. There's so much irony in this verse, and it's here for a reason. But, but notice how verse 1 begins. It says, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the times when kings go forth to battle, and it ends... But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now understand that in the spring, if there was fighting going on, that's when they would do it. In the winter, it was too cold. They had the rainy season. The roads were muddy. There was not as much fighting that took place. But when the weather got better, that's when kings went to war. And it literally says it was time to go fighting. It's it's the time when kings lead their armies out on the battlefield. But David tarried at Jerusalem. He sent Joab to do his job. He sent the soldiers to do his job. And so he's already, it just seems like he's bored with the whole thing. He just seems to be over it. He was ungrateful. And therefore he stayed at the house while his army fought abroad. The warrior isn't warring. The fighter isn't fighting. And get this now, get this. If we ever become ungrateful for what the Lord has done in our lives, And if we ever become complacent in what the Lord has called us to do, we will be ripe for temptation. We will be ripe for temptation. Now what's so sad is that David had it so good and he didn't even seem to be enjoying it. You know, you think to yourself, well, maybe he wanted a break or maybe he was tired of fighting. The text here says that evidently they had made it through the whole winter and rainy season without fighting. So he had already had a break. Now it's time to go fight again. Oh, Joab, you can get this. And by the way, they did get it. They were dominating on the battlefield even when David was not there. He was so complacent in this moment. That had never been David's MO. David has never operated this way before. I want to ask you a question. Are you truly enjoying the salvation that God has given you? Think about that now. What is your joy like today 
compared to the day when God saved you? Are you enjoying being a Christian? Does life have meaning and purpose in Christ for you? Or do you find that the Christian life seems to be more of a burden than a blessing? Are you having to endure things? You know, if we're not careful, our blessings will seem like burdens. Was it a burden to you to get up this morning and come to church? Is it a burden to you to take care of your family, your spouse, your kids? Is it a, is it a burden to you to share the gospel with others? Do you get burdened by things that ought to bless you? Friends, something's wrong. We need to pay attention to these things. Now, if that's true, then something has made its way into your heart and mind that has stolen the joy of being a child of God. There's several things that can do this, just to throw a few things out at you. Complacency, ungratefulness, lust, idolatry, covetousness, bitterness, unforgiveness, worry, these things drain the joy and the life out of a Christian. And we must lay these things at the foot of the cross so we can joyfully do what the Lord has called us to do. We must rejoice in the Lord. And I think this is further proof, and I've got to move on. This is proof that as Spurgeon said, it's not necessarily how much we have, but how much we can enjoy that makes us happy. David had everything. I mean, he, you couldn't name one thing he didn't have. He wasn't enjoying it. He got lazy. He was in the bed. And he got complacent when he should have been doing what God had called him to do. And doing it with joy. He'd always done it with joy before. We must rejoice in the Lord. And if something is stealing our joy, we better go find it. We better ask ourselves, uh, what are the things that are getting between us and the joy of the Lord? What, what fears, what idols, what temptation, what lust, what is coming between me and the joy of the Lord? But then number two, if we're going to avoid moral failure, we must refuse to be lazy. Look again at number, uh, verse number one here. came to pass after the year was expired. At the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed. That's where he is. He's laid up in the bed while his soldiers are out fighting. David's army was out annihilating the enemy. And as a result, he got lazy. Well, you know, here's what's so amazing to me about David. And, I, man, I think we just need to get a hold of this. But David thrived under pressure. I mean, he faced things that would make the average person absolutely wilt. He fought against bears. He fought against lions. I mean, we went out, we rode out to Ephraim's grave yesterday, and that's the, that's the famous grizzly bear. And they had a statue that's, almost 10 feet tall, and it's supposed to represent how big that bear was. And just standing looking up that, I thought, man, there ain't... And what I thought was, that's about the same size as Goliath was. And I thought, man, there ain't no way. Go get him, David. You, you got this, man. And, uh, but David said, hey, the Lord has delivered me from the mouth of the bear and the lion, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be as one of them. He thrived in that kind of pressure. I mean, he thrived in battle. He was just a man's man. And God had his hand on him, there's no doubt. He, he outlasted Saul and, 
came to the throne. I mean, it, by God's grace, David could handle things that would just make most people quit. But, but listen to this, even at the end of chapter 10, the chapter 10 actually ends with David going out to fight over 40,000 Syrian horsemen and over 700 armored chariots. No, no small task for the average person, okay? Even at the end of chapter 10, he's fighting. He's winning. He won the day even under the circumstances. But it seemed like during the time that passed at the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of 11, David got lazy. He got complacent. But when things get too good and too easy, listen, that's what messed David up. We, we have to get this. When things got too good, that's what messed David up. Now listen, when we pray, you don't have to say amen, I already know it anyway. When we ask God for things, when we pray, I imagine if you were to give a percentage, probably over 90% of the things that we pray for are comfort related, are they not? Lord, give me better health. Lord, give me a better job. Lord, give me a promotion. Lord, maybe give me a nicer house or a better car. And listen, I don't think God frowns upon these things, especially if we're asking for the right reasons. But I mean, I think we're caught up in it. We're asking for things that will give us ease in this life. And so in that sense, we are actually praying for the things that destroyed David. Think about that for a minute. God, give me the things that destroyed David and made him fall on his face morally. And we wonder why God doesn't answer more of our prayers. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't always give us the desires of our heart? Oh, Lord, I could handle it. David couldn't. Let a man take heed. If he thinks he stands, he just might fall. We ask the Lord for things that destroyed David. Now, the struggles of life make us more dependent upon God. And even when things are good, we must refuse to be lazy because laziness and lust go hand in hand every time. And we have to understand, I want you to get this, we do need times of rest. Rest is important. We do need seasons and times of refreshing in our lives, but get this, the rest that we need is to prepare for the battle not to avoid it. David had already had all winter to rest. The rest we need is to prepare for the battle, not to avoid it. That's never been the MO of a Christian. We must refuse to be lazy. But then, number three, I've got to move on. Number three, if we're going to avoid moral failure, we're going to have to recognize where we are spiritually. Look at verse 2. It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. We're going to have to recognize where we are spiritually. Uh, when I think about this principle, it reminds me of something that's uh, given us a new experience from living so far away from our family. You know, our kids, we're with them every day. And I mean, yeah, we would agree, hey, uh, they're, they're growing up, they're, they're getting bigger, they're learning, some, they're changing. We, like, we know those things. But the once 
a year, maybe twice a year, we go see our family, it never fails. Oh my goodness, look how big they are. We're going to have to put a brick on their head, you know, and just they just cannot believe how much the kids have grown because they haven't been there the whole time. They haven't seen the slow day-by-day growth and process. They just see it about six months apart, uh, a year apart, all at once. If we're not careful, we can get that way spiritually. We can let subtle things go in our life and we, we don't even know it and we don't even recognize it. And then it, it's in our face. And when we, find, when we look at this text, there was a bunch of quote-unquote little things that were going on in David's life that set him up for failure. This was a process, and it usually always is. There was a subtle progression. I want to give you a few of these things here. Think about this. One, David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Number two, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. Number three, he accidentally saw Bathsheba naked, and he should have turned away, but he didn't. And you, I want you to notice we've already progressed within the progression. At first, he is not doing some things he's supposed to do. And now that he's put himself in this situation, now he's doing things that he shouldn't do. Then, uh, not only did he lust after, but uh, fourthly, he ignores the roadblocks that God put in his way. I find it interesting that when David sent his servant to inquire of Bathsheba, when he asked about her, the servant made it a point to tell David that she was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. In other words, it's almost like the Lord is saying through this servant, and maybe the servant was saying, I don't know what the servant knew and didn't know, but I find that interesting. And it's almost like, yeah, that woman that you want to defile and defile yourself with, she's a wife and a daughter. Think, just think about that. Even more roadblocks, even more warnings, and David ignores it. And also, man, this is really interesting to me. We can see this progression in real time through the frequent use of the word sent. This is really good. I want you to see this quickly. Look at at verse 1. David sent Joab and his servants with him, talking about to the battle. Verse 3, and David sent and inquired after the woman. Verse 4, and David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. Verse 5, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, uh, I am with child. Verse 6, and David sent to Joab. Uh, This is when he came up with a plan to kill um, uh, Uriah. Look at verse uh, 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Um, Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. This is when he told David that Uriah was dead. Look at verse 27. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her, talking about Bathsheba, to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now look at how chapter 12 starts out. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Oh boy. David's been doing the sending up to this point. Now God has sent a prophet to his house. And friend, it was never good news when the prophet showed up at the door. You know I know all these prophets are false in our day? Not only because the Bible says they are, but the fact they never have anything bad to say about anybody or anything. That was not the message of the Old Testament prophet. Whenever Israel got away from God, he raised up a prophet to tell him about it. I think about that Old Testament prophet Micaiah. 
The king didn't even want, he wanted to hear from the false prophets. He didn't want to hear what Micaiah said. He said he ain't never got nothing good to say. And he didn't use that vernacular, but you get it. <laughs> Micaiah never has anything good to say. You look at the so-called prophets of today, all, you think all God wanted to ever do was bless somebody, give us health, wealth, and prosperity, and all the beating desires of our hearts. Now, now the Lord is sending. Well, that's a scary thought. But see, there seems to be indication in the text that even David himself was caught off guard by his failure and that this wasn't an ongoing thing. I find it interesting that back in verse 4, as soon as the deed was done, Bathsheba returned unto her house. And then in verse 5, weeks or months later, I'm sure it I mean, took a fair amount of time to find out she was pregnant. She had to send for David, which means that they didn't have, it's not like they saw each other every day. They didn't have an open line of communication. I think this seems to indicate they probably never saw each other again. It probably happened in the heat of the moment. There was grief. There was shame. There was guilt. Uh, It wasn't an ongoing thing. And then, but hey, the one and done, she got pregnant and God made his sin uh, public. And so... um, Uh, Again, moral failure oftentimes comes by process. There were several things that led up to this point. But things have snowballed now beyond David's wildest imaginations. Listen, we have to get this. We must recognize where we are spiritually. And sometimes we just need to sit down and take inventory of our lives spiritually. What are the thoughts that we dwell on every day? What are the things that we do? What are our desires? What are, uh, what are the things that trouble and worry? What is the fruit of our life spiritually? Thought life, prayer life, time in the Word, joy, faithfulness to church, marriage and family relationships. If these things are waning, don't ignore them. Find out why and deal with them. Because I don't, I don't believe there's such thing as spiritual neutrality. I think we're always going one way or another. David didn't deal with his stuff, and it snowballed. And so I want to I ask you this before I move on to my last point. This is a very sobering thought to me. What, if you, what, what direction would your life take if you actually acted upon the thoughts that you dwell upon every day? If you actually acted upon the thoughts that you dwell on daily, which direction would your life take? Because as I've said so many times, our feet can never take us where our mind has never been. We need to deal with these things and kill them and ask God to crucify them within us. We must recognize where we are spiritually. And by the way, I'll say this, and this is another sermon from the day, we need to help others do so as well. That's why I say discipleship is everyone's responsibility. If we see somebody waning in their church attendance, hey, what's going on? Is everything okay? You know, and... Try to encourage and provoke one another the good works. If we see somebody going down the wrong way, we ought to say something. Hey, man, this isn't a good idea. I mean, uh, and this is why. And, you know, we always feel so bad. We've been, we have been brainwashed by the cult of nice. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but that's not in the Bible. We can be nice as we be godly, brothers and sisters in Christ, and, hey, this, this, you need to pray about it. This isn't a good idea. And it can, listen, it cannot always be the pastor. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know why it is this way, but it is this way. When the pastor says something in private to somebody, most people, not everybody, most people take it as a scolding session. 
Now, most of the time, that's never stopped me. But it, it, it does give me pause, okay? But when other brothers and sisters in Christ do it, they see it as a care. Hey, they're just caring about me. They, they're looking out for me. They'll give it. You know, it just it seems to go further. I don't know. what. And plus, if I'm the one that has to do it all the time, then I come out. I'm just the bad guy, you know? But uh, there is safety in the multitude of counselors. And that's why we need to take that upon ourselves and don't overlook If we love somebody, we're going to say something. That's just, just all there is to it. Now, there's a tactful and right way to do it, and there's an untactful and wrong way, and I've been guilty of that plenty of times. I know y'all are shocked by that. We need to be compassionate. We need to come in the spirit of humility, understanding that we have not and never will arrive in this lifetime. <clears throat> but we need to recognize where we are Spiritually. But then lastly, and I'm done. Number four, if we're going to avoid moral failure, we're going to have to repent early and often. When I think about this, um, you know, by the time you get to chapter 12, uh, Nathan comes to his house, says, Thou art the man, and he does. He repents. I'm in talking about it in sackcloth and ashes. You can read about that in Psalm 51. The Psalms are not in necessarily in chronological order. You can read about David's repentance in Psalm 51. Heartbreaking words. Heartbreaking. But listen, repentance ought to be a lifestyle for the Christian. God's people ought to live a life of repentance. 1 John 1.9, which was written to believers... If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a verse about uh, you know, losing our salvation and getting saved again. It's talking about fellowship with God, walking in the light as He is in the light, as it said just a few verses earlier in that same chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32, it says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged... We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God has a way of getting a hold of His children. Now think about this. If David had repented of the fact that he stayed home while his army was fighting and made his way to the battlefield, no harm, no foul. If he had repented after uh, he lusted after Bathsheba, no harm, no foul. He should have looked away, Lord help me. If he had repented after he inquired of Bathsheba, and found out that she was a wife and daughter, no harm, no foul. But he didn't. He did not judge himself, and so God had to judge him. He didn't judge himself, and as a result, he paid the price. And if it can happen to David, it can happen to anyone. I want to ask you this question. Uh, again, if you gave in to your thoughts, of, of your mind, your heart, your desires, if you gave in to those things, what would your life be like? If you would end up going to evil places and doing evil things, you need to repent and submit those things unto the Lord before you submit to them. David fell on his face, but it was a slow process. He stopped rejoicing the Lord. He got complacent and lazy. He didn't recognize where he was spiritually, and he didn't repent early. All sin is grievous and offensive to the Lord. But as I said, some sin carries much greater consequences and some sin is life-changing. Don't let your sin change your life. Let the Lord change your life daily. Now, I know this raises another question. And this is what we're going to deal with next week. 
what happens if we find ourselves like David and we didn't avoid the moral disaster and we commit the sin that changes our life forever? There's still hope. We're going to talk about that next week. But friend, I want to encourage you. We, we live in a world that is so hostile to God. I mean, you're just not going to get fed anything from the news or social media or, you know, what have you. And we have to, on purpose, devour the Word of God. Get into our prayer closet. Take time with the Lord. Make sure that we're uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not just, you know, trusting 30 minutes to an hour, hour and a half a week to a pastor. Y'all said, don't shortchange yourself. It's a lot more than that, but... I mean, really, are you on purpose seeking to live out God's will for your life? Are you on purpose growing and cherishing and, and nurturing that relationship with God? If not, our, our, our lean is always to go the other way. I mean, it just is the way. We're just not, we're not naturally grateful, are we? We're not naturally spiritual. We're not naturally wanting to get in there and do the things of God. That's supernatural. And if we're not taking time in the supernatural things of God that He's given us to grow, we're going to be in trouble. And if it can happen to David, it can happen to anybody. Don't, don't be a stat. Be aware that it can happen. It has and it could to you.